0: Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. For today's episode, I'm joined by Professor Alexander Ford, an internationally renowned researcher with a particular interest in the diagnosis and treatment of disorders with gut-brain interaction. Alex is a professor and consultant gastroenterologist at St. James University Hospital, part of the University of Leeds School of Medicine and Spire Leeds Hospital here in the UK. It's a fine institution that I've had the privilege of collaborating with, and we've had other guests on the podcast uh, from there. And to our overseas listeners, when you visit the UK, you probably come to London, and it's a fine city. It's where I'm from, and I love it. But check out Leeds. It's a charming place, and it's, it's, it's got a character all of its own. And by the way, the Yorkshire countryside is amongst the most awe-inspiring I've ever seen. There, that's my Tory's poor bit all done. Since obtaining his medical degrees from the University of Leeds in 1997, Alex has earned a number of other qualifications, such as a postgraduate certificate in health research and his MD for his thesis, also from the University of Leeds. In 2007, Alex went to Canada to become a postdoctoral fellow at McMaster University in Hamilton, where he consolidated his research experience and became an independent clinical researcher. He's received many honours and awards, including the United European Gastroenterology Rising Star of Gastroenterology in 2008 the Rome Foundation Aldo Torsoli Foundation Award for Research, Education and Patient Care in Gut-Brain Interactions in 2020, and was named Gut Author of the Year in 2021. Throughout his career, Alex has sat on numerous committees, such as for the British Society of Gastroenterology, the American Gastroenterological Association, often for Digestive Diseases Week, and most recently, the Rome Foundation. His experienced teaching junior doctors, medical students and professionals allied to medicine which he deems as an integral part of his job and he also mentors MD and PhD fellows amongst others. However, Alex doesn't limit his services to the UK. Collaborating with other researchers around the world, wait for it, he has published over 400 articles. I feel like a sloth in comparison. 400 with more than 600 co-authors. And when not pushing the boundaries of medical science, Alex is pushing his own boundaries. He runs a lot and is currently training for the Leeds Marathon, which is being organised in aid of motor neurone disease. Sadly, one of Alex's best friend's wives died of this wretched disease in her early 40s. So, Professor Alex Ford, I am in awe. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, hello, Jonathan. Yes, um, there's no need to be. I'm a normal human being. Defining normal. I, you know,
0: I've always tried to keep busy, but uh, you're, you're, really, you're really going for it. I can't wait to get into the topic. So let, let's dig right in. Your research has focused on treating disorders of gut-brain interaction, something that's really only fairly recently made it into the lay media. Things like irritable bowel syndromes or IBS, dyspepsia and the like. So let's start at the top. Talk to us about the gut-brain interaction and and how dysfunction might lead to various conditions. And please bear in mind that although our audience are primarily medical, we do get a lot of lay people listening in. So it might be nice to to sort of spread spread the wisdom, if you will.
1: Okay, so um, I guess many people will have heard of functional disorders and in gastroenterology there were a set of conditions called functional gastrointestinal disorders which included irritable bowel syndrome and functional dyspepsia and conditions like that. But over the last five, ten years or so, the view on the etiology of these disorders has been revised really and also functional as a, as a term is viewed perhaps as a, as a sort of pejorative term. And the, the the disorders have been reframed as disorders of gut-brain interaction because the brain and the gut communicate through a part of the nervous system called the enteric nervous system. And that communication is termed bidirectional. In other words, messages can go from the gut to the brain upwards, but also messages can go from the brain down to the gut. And it's felt that in people with these disorders of gut brain interaction like irritable bowel syndrome there is some faulty wiring a bit like having a you know a burglar alarm that's going off all the time and that that is the underlying explanation for why people experience this sort of disturbance of gastrointestinal physiology and also abnormal pain sensation which is termed usually visceral hypersensitivity in people with disorders of gut brain interaction but the gut-brain axis, is its role isn't limited to IBS. The gut-brain axis is at play in all of us. And as we'll probably talk about later on, the gut-brain axis may have effects in other gastrointestinal diseases, including inflammatory bowel disease, for instance.
0: You mentioned the term pejorative, uh, as in, you know, that if, if people are complaining of these uh, these symptoms, pain um, in constant uh, defecation, and they have the conventional investigations, and you don't see cancer, you don't see diverticulosis. So the old thought was, well, it's just in their head. It literally is in their head. Um, it's, uh, it's 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 a, a neurological dysfunction between the gut and the brain. Yeah. With that assumption, talk to us broadly about how disorders of gut-brain interaction would impact the quality of life. Um, And, you know, I mean, spoiler alert, profoundly, right?
1: Precisely, yes. So these sorts of conditions have a similar impact on quality of life to what we would view as being organic disorders. So both organic disorders of the intestine, like Crohn's disease or ulcerative colitis, the inflammatory bowel diseases, irritable bowel syndrome has a similar impact on quality of life to those. It also impacts on quality of life to a similar degree to things like having heart failure or rheumatoid arthritis, because these disorders of gut-brain interaction tend to overlap. So in other words, you can have more than one of these conditions going on at the same time. There's there's a sort of an incremental impairment of quality of life with an increasing number of overlapping disorders of gut-brain interaction. And they don't just impact on quality of life, they impact on social functioning. So, you know, the ability to be able to go out and work, the ability to carry out your activities of daily living. They probably reduce um, employability and income. And as a result, people who suffer from this, these from these disorders are willing to accept considerable risks from, you know, from a hypothetical drug for a cure of their symptoms up to, you know, almost like a 5% uh, risk of death with a, with a drug in order for, for, for their symptoms to be cured, for 100% chance of their symptoms being cured, if you see what I mean.
0: So uh, let's get a bit more granular. Helicobacter uh, pylori, the bug known to cause peptic ulcer disease. You, you conducted a study and researched the, the cost-effectiveness of eradicating it in certain conditions, including peptic ulcer disease and dyspepsia. Tell us why that's important and what what were the key results of those studies?
1: So I'm known really for doing quite a lot of meta-analysis, but that was the first meta-analysis I ever did was to look at the efficacy of eradication therapy in peptic ulcer disease. And that's important because Helicobacter pylori is a human pathogen. It's a carcinogen. It's classified by the World Health Organization as a human carcinogen because it's associated with gastric cancer. But it also causes peptic ulcer. It's a highly prevalent infection in some parts of the world. It can infect the stomachs of around 50% of the Of the population it also contributes probably to dyspepsia so indigestion type symptoms in the community so some of the prevalence of dyspepsia in the community is actually attributable to infection with the bacterium and what we showed in this this meta-analysis was that eradicating h pylori in peptic ulcer disease so that's gastric ulcer and duodenal ulcer was highly effective in terms of preventing an ulcer relapse in the future compared with giving the patient an ulcer healing drug like a proton pump inhibitor, so for example, lansoprazole, for four weeks, giving them a course of antibiotics, so that's what eradication therapy is, in combination with an ulcer healing drug, was much more efficacious in terms of preventing ulcer relapse. And I guess importantly, um, having done probably 50 to 100 meta-analyses since, the treatment effect in that meta-analysis is one of the strongest I've ever seen. So the number needed to treat with eradication therapy to prevent one, ulcer, one duodenal ulcer relapse was two, and the number needed to treat to prevent one gastric ulcer relapse was three. And we also did a, a, a Markov model cost-effectiveness analysis that showed that eradicating H. pylori in helicobacter pylori-positive patients with peptic ulcer was cost-effective.
0: It's a, it's a statement of fact that nowadays we have to be aware of the cost Uh, to deal with conditions, because, you know, a friend of mine once said, I practiced both in the United States and and the UK, that um, the difference between the two systems was de minimis. The British system is financially broke and knows it. The American system is broke and hasn't figured that out yet, spending nearly 19% of gross domestic product on health. It's unsustainable, frankly, right? Uh, Yeah, I agree. Absolutely. Yes. So we've got to solve those problems. So Moving on to your MD thesis work, which helped to inform the National Institute for Health and Care uh, Excellence, or NICE guidelines, for the management of dyspepsia. Tell us about the impact of that work.
1: So that was really carrying on from my thesis, which was related to the um, effect of eradicating H. pylori in various situations, including patients with uninvestigated dyspepsia, so people who are coming to consult with a doctor for the first time in primary care with symptoms of dyspepsia. And what we did was we compared management strategies for the initial management of uninvestigated dyspepsia. So that would be testing people with dyspepsia for Helicobacter pylori and eradicating the bacterium if it was present. So that's called test and treat. Endoscoping everyone, which is what we were doing at the time. This was in the early 2000s. So everyone with dyspepsia got an endoscopy because we were worried they might have gastric cancer or an ulcer, even though gastric cancer is rare in the UK or giving people what we call empirical, so in other words, just you know, on suspicion that their symptoms are acid-related, giving them um, a proton pump inhibitor. And basically what that work showed was that although test and treat was probably less effective for symptom cure than prompt endoscopy, it cost significantly less than endoscoping everyone for dyspepsia. And actually, um, we did some analysis to look at what you'd have to be willing to pay per individual cured of dyspepsia for prompt endoscopy to be cost effective. And it was around about $180,000 per patient for prompt endoscopy to be a cost effective management strategy for uninvestigated dyspepsia. And basically, as a result of that, um, what happened is that the sort of guidelines moved away from recommending everyone should have an endoscopy for dyspepsia towards these non-invasive strategies like test and treat.
0: Yeah, that's a significant chunk of change, right?
1: Yes, it was at the time. So
0: earlier I'd mentioned that you worked at McMaster in in Canada uh, as a postdoctoral fellow. Tell us a little bit about your experience over there. And, and, you know, also culturally, what was it like to
1: experience a different system? I went there for two reasons, really. One is that my mentor had emigrated and was working at McMaster. And he asked me if I wanted to go and work with him for a year. And also I felt and and so I felt that I would get more experience of academia and I would be able to use that to potentially become independent myself. And I also felt that it would be good to experience another healthcare system and living in another country. And so I I, I arrived there in October of 2007. And it was really quite beautiful, because obviously, it was the autumn or fall, as they call it. And, you know, the leaves were all russet and gold but rather rapidly it descended into a, into a four-month winter which obviously for someone from the UK who's not used to uh four months of um, snow on the ground it was um it was an interesting experience and, and actually quite socially isolating for that period of time because people don't actually do that much during the winter because it's so cold but I ultimately i I sort of made you know good friends out there i had a really good time i got a lot of experience in terms of extra projects and more papers and i published probably about a paper a month while i was out there and but i also managed to travel a lot so i got to see other bits of canada and i you know i traveled to vancouver and i went skiing in banff and i visited quebec city which is you know a medieval town of the only walled town in north america it feels very european in comparison to the rest of canada and so basically, I, it was a, you know, it was a formative experience, I would say, for me overall.
0: I've had the same
1: experiences of thinking, wow,
0: Montreal is really beautiful. And then finding myself there in January and thinking, it's no, no wonder no one does anything. You're burning all your calories just trying to maintain your body temperature. Yes. A beautiful country and lovely, lovely people. While you're in Canada, you perform meta-analyses to uh, to assess the efficacy of drugs in treating IBS, confirming that antidepressants were an effective treatment expand on that if you would
1: so yeah that's an interesting story when i went to quebec city on my road trip uh, i um i was involved in a really quite um life potentially life-threatening uh, car accident on the way home and i ended up abandoning my car in a place called brockville which is on the border of um ontario and quebec and when i got back to um, hamilton 20 hours later it was a bit like a planes trains and automobiles um scenario I, I sort of told my mentor that I'd had this terrible car crash and that I need, you know, I'd had to abandon my car. He said, he said it sounds it sounds terrible, terrible. Um, come round for dinner. I've got some extra work that I need you to do. And so basically what he said was that he needed somebody to help him do a series of meta-analyses for the American College of Gastroenterology about the treatment of IBS. But he also said oh these these have all been done before they're not going to show anything that we don't already know but we'll they'll pay us to do them obviously i i needed i needed the money for car repairs so i said yeah absolutely you know i'll definitely um definitely happy to do this for you Um, and so we did these meta-analyses and we did um all all the available treatments at the time and what was interesting was that The antidepressant story was that previously, I think there'd been a Cochrane review that showed that antidepressants were of no benefit in IBS. But when we searched the literature and got all the data together and pooled the data, we found that there was actually a benefit of particularly tricyclic antidepressants in IBS, so drugs like amitriptyline. And when we went back and looked at the Cochrane review, we realised that was because they'd made some errors in their data extraction. Um, and actually, they transposed treatment arms in the in the review and things like that. So actually, they would have shown a benefit if they'd have extracted the data correctly in the first place. So that kind of has led on to um, the use of these drugs more widely, I think. It's more widely accepted that these sorts of drugs can be beneficial. But it's important to point out that we're not really using them as antidepressants in this scenario. They're being used at a, a low dose, a much lower dose than will be used to treat depression. And they're actually probably gut, what we would call gut-brain neuromodulators. So they're actually modifying the nervous system, the the gut-brain axis, and that's how they're having their effects.
0: It's interesting. Uh, Expanding on that, uh, there's an assumption, I believe, and certainly when I was first learning about it, that IBS is more common in in females. Is that correct? And are other disorders of gut-brain interaction more prevalent in females or given ethnicities? And if so, why?
1: Yes, I mean, I think that was always felt to be the case. Most data on... Disorders of gut-brain interaction is from epidemiological surveys, where you know a questionnaire is sent out to a thousand people in the community with a checklist of symptoms, which they either endorse or don't endorse, and then you know the, the prevalence of IBS or dyspepsia or whatever is is calculated. Um, but there can be individual variations between studies, and you know volunteer bias and things like that that might influence who uh, responds to the questionnaire, so that you know it could be that people who are symptomatic are more likely to respond rather than people who don't have any symptoms at all and things like that. So that could influence things. But interestingly, recently, the Rome Foundation have done a, um, a multinational survey where they did an internet survey across 20 to 25 countries simultaneously. And what was interesting from that was that all of the functional disorders or disorders of gut-brain interaction, as they're now termed, were more common in females, practically all of them, than, than males. But... The prevalence across individual countries was was very similar. For most countries, the prevalence of IBS was between about 3 and 7% and similar for functional dyspepsia. So um, although there's a female predominance, it doesn't appear as though there is a, a variation in prevalence according to country or ethnicity to any great degree.
0: Any further thoughts about what's going on
1: here? Obviously, um, there are differences in, in diet around the world, although many countries as they develop, start to move closer to a Western diet. That's one of the things that happens as countries become more affluent. Perhaps one of the limitations of the Rome study is that there weren't that many surveys done in countries in Africa or in you know the developing world. So it may be that these conditions are more likely in countries that are more likely to take part in a survey such as that that requires internet access and that that's why the prevalence is so similar and that's actually if you went to rural Africa uh, where people are eating you know pulse based um, diet or something like that they may be much much less likely to um, to report these sorts of symptoms but that's that's unclear. The Rome Foundation have collected information on diet as part of that study but I think they're yet to um, present any um, analyses of that. Staying on the theme of diet, and
0: we've mentioned antidepressants as, as an efficacious treatment for IBS, and the traditional dietary adjustment, there's the, the the FODMAP diet. And for those of you who are unfamiliar, and I can never remember this, FODMAP stands for fermentable oligosaccharides, disaccharides, monico, monosaccharides, and polyols, which are short-chain carbohydrates, sugars, that the small intestine absorbs, poorly over to you Alex talk to us a bit
1: more about that so yes that's right FODMAPs are poorly absorbed and they then will enter the colon where they're usually fermented uh, by because most of our gastrointestinal microbiome is is in the colon and so they'll be fermented by the bacteria in the colon and they produce gas and so that is felt to lead to perhaps discomfort, pain and bloating and also they have osmotic effects there and they cause shifts in water. So water will move into the intestine so it's felt that they will um, exacerbate loose stools and frequent stools and things like that. This isn't an area that I've done any clinical trials in myself but there have been multiple clinical trials of excluding FODMAPs from the diet what's called a low FODMAP diet the important thing to understand about the low FODMAP diet is it's not a diet that you should follow long term so what you do is there are three phases to it you should exclude FODMAPs as much as possible during the first phase and then you start to reintroduce them gradually during the second phase to tolerance in other words you reintroduce single food items that have high FODMAP containing and see whether or not they induce your symptoms of IBS. And if they do, obviously, you would exclude those longer term. But if if they don't, then you carry on with them. And then you personalise the diet, that's the third phase, so that you're, you're only avoiding the FODMAPs that trigger your symptoms. The sorts of foods that contain FODMAPs, things like artificial sweeteners, uh, xylitol, which you'll get in chewing gum and things like that some of the other alcohol sugars like sorbitol which you'll find in stone fruits galacto oligosaccharides or gos for short uh, which you tend to find a lot of in onions and garlic so they're notorious for triggering symptoms legumes so um, things like green beans broad beans you know haricot beans so baked beans those kinds of things so these are the kinds of foods, food items that will potentially be high FODMAP containing. Wheat is another one because it contains a sugar chain called fructan. Fructan is a, is a FODMAP. Removing those in the diet has been tested in clinical trials and it seems to benefit some people with IBS. Um, I guess what I would say about those trials is that there are very few of them that study anything beyond the first phase of the diet. The, the second and third phase most trials don't look at that. So although people are improved versus a habitual diet on a low FODMAP diet, Uh, in the trials, they haven't, they've only studied the exclusion phase, most of them.
0: Right, a bit out of left field, but there are these over-the-counter things uh, that contain alpha-galactosidase as a means of dealing with some of the symptoms caused by eating beans, for instance. Um, Thoughts on those?
1: Are they helpful? It's not something I'm actually aware of. That's very interesting.
0: I'm not sure if they're available over-the-counter. They're certainly available in the United States, because I used to see patients who you know, would complain that if they had a, you know, like, for instance, Mexican diets, uh, Indian food are, are, are rich in these sort of things, lots of beans and so on and so forth, and people would complain that they were very gassy, and it seems to work. You've published some papers I, that I wanted to sort of conflate a couple, one describing a study entitled Characteristics and Effect of Anxiety and Depression Trajectories in Inflammatory Bowel Disease, And you discuss the natural history of symptoms of common mental disorders, anxiety and depression in patients with inflammatory bowel disease. And you also published in the very prominent journal, uh, Gastroenterology, addressing the relative contribution of disease activity and psychological health to the prognosis in inflammatory bowel disease during, I think, six and a half years of of follow up. Can you talk to us about those publications on what you learned?
1: Thanks for highlighting those two papers. I think they're really interesting. And this goes back to what we discussed right at the beginning, where we talked about the gut-brain axis and how it might have a role in other gastrointestinal conditions beyond disorders of gut-brain interaction. So the first paper that you mentioned, we basically recruited around about 750 patients with inflammatory bowel disease from our own hospital. And we recorded their mood scores, so their um, anxiety and depression scores at baseline, so time zero. And then we followed them up every three months for a year. So they answered the same questionnaire at three-month intervals up to a year. And then we also looked at their medical records to record uh, adverse disease endpoints, like a flare of their inflammatory bowel disease or an escalation of therapy, hospitalisation or surgery for inflammatory bowel disease. We, We basically studied what we call the trajectories of these symptoms of anxiety and depression over the year. So in other words, whether people had sort of persistently normal levels of symptoms or persistently abnormal levels of symptoms of anxiety or depression or whether their symptoms fluctuated. And what we, what we found was that persistently abnormal or worsening scores were much more likely to have been recently diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease and also to have active disease um, according to sort of clinical activity measures at the time they came into the study. What we had hoped to show was that the trajectories might predict a worse prognosis over the 12 months so in other words the ones who had the uh, persistently abnormal mood scores would have a worse prognosis but we didn't show that but we all what we also showed was that if you had abnormal scores at baseline it was highly unlikely that you would that those scores would change only about one in ten people who had abnormal scores at baseline normalized during follow-up So this kind of underlines the importance of mental health in inflammatory bowel disease, which is not something that's often considered in the conventional management paradigm for inflammatory bowel disease. And, you know, probably underlines again, uh, also the fact that people who've been recently diagnosed with inflammatory bowel disease might need some form of, you know, psychological support, or at least checking to see whether they've become becoming anxious or depressed about their new diagnosis. The second paper, I think, is even more interesting. So This is another study of our own patients with inflammatory bowel disease, around about 700 patients. This is a different group of people. And these were people that we recruited into a study six or seven years ago now. And again, they provided us with mood scores at baseline and also disease activity scores at baseline. And we followed them up for, as as you've said, around about six years. And again, we were able to look at their medical records to check for adverse disease outcomes like flare, escalation, hospitalisation and surgery. And what was interesting in this paper, I I think it's really interesting, is that we can divide the patients into four groups. The, The reference group who have normal mood scores and have their disease in remission. We have a second group where they have abnormal mood scores, but their disease is in remission. We have a third group who have normal mood scores, but activity of their disease. And then we have a fourth group who have kind of like a double hit of having abnormal mood scores and active disease. And what we showed was that that last group had the worst prognosis compared with the patients who had normal mood scores and whose disease was in remission. So they were much more likely to have a flare, to have to escalate therapy, to be hospitalised, to have surgery and even to die. And actually, those who just had active disease but had normal mood scores didn't really have much of a worse prognosis than the than the reference category so i think for me what that underlines is that psychological factors are at least as important as physical health or you know disease activity in determining prognosis in inflammatory bowel disease and really that psychological health should be considered as a therapeutic target in inflammatory bowel disease you know at the moment what 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 most trials in inflammatory bowel disease are interested in is clinical remission of symptoms, mucosal healing, things like that. But actually, psychological health is an important predictor of prognosis.
0: I like to say that there's the disease and then there's the disease, you know, the impact of the disease on your psychological health. But of course, you may have inherent neuropsychiatric problems superimposed on it. Fascinating. So, Alex, if you were to come across a dusty old lamp that you polished, it released a magical genie. What would your three wishes be to improve the lot of the patients that you care
1: for? Really good question. I think if we're talking about patients with disorders of gut-brain interaction who would probably form the bulk of my practice, what I would like for, for them, threefold really, firstly is a quicker path to diagnosis, making a positive diagnosis. This is particularly relevant for irritable bowel syndrome. So not just testing and testing and testing and saying, I don't know what's wrong, let's do another test. And then at the end saying, well, I can't find anything wrong with you, so it must be IBS. You know, that's what I would call a dustbin diagnosis where you're just kind of throwing someone in at the last minute uh, without, you know, what, what we should be doing is doing some limited investigations, listening to the patient, taking a history, making a positive diagnosis based on symptoms and excluding common mimics for IBS. So that would be number one. Uh, Number two, I think, would be to do with doctors and and healthcare professionals having more empathy and understanding, but also probably friends, relatives and society as a whole, having a better understanding of the impact of gastrointestinal symptoms on quality of life and social functioning for people living with these chronic disorders like disorders of gut-brain interaction and inflammatory bowel disease. And then lastly, probably particularly for disorders of gut-brain interaction, more understanding on the part of patients regarding the role of the gut-brain axis in the etiology of their symptoms and and therefore kind of a removal of the stigma that surrounds the use of what we've called antidepressants, but what really should be called gut-brain neuromodulators or gut-brain behavioural therapies like cognitive behavioural therapy or hypnotherapy and a willingness to consider their use uh, in the treatment of their symptoms so unfortunately that's all we've got time for today because i've got tons
0: more questions i'd like to thank professor alex Ford for taking the time to talk to us today for all, all that you've done for for patients and i'm sure we'll continue to do for patients and for all your valuable insights alex thank you
1: thanks very much for having me it's been uh, it's been delightful to
0: chat absolutely so uh, next time i'm in uh in your neck of the woods, maybe we can modulate our, uh, our gut microbiome with, with some, <laughs> some fermented wheat <weed> products <laughs> or barley. That sounds great. So folks, if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join the EMJ podcast next week for another chat with someone in healthcare who's helping our understanding and helping patients. Until then, I'm Dr. Jonathan Sakya. Please stay safe. Stay well, stay curious. Bye for now.